No, 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 not yet. Hello? Hello? Hi, everyone. Um, hello? Can we, can we please start? Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. Welcome to today's um, event. My name is Victoria Dendrino. I'm a reporter for the Wall Street Journal here. I'll be the, the chair of the event. Our topic today is um, Brexit and trade and what the EU and WTO rules imply. Judging by the number of you not just sitting but also standing, I can tell there's great interest in this topic. Um, I mean, it couldn't be more timely. The UK government is expected to trigger Article 50 next month, essentially starting a countdown till Brexit. So there is tons of questions that still remain unanswered, chiefly what will the relationship between the EU and the UK be? Um, and obviously trade plays a massive part of this. Um, it seems increasingly unlikely that there will be a customs union relationship, which means that there is uncharted territory for the WTO too. So we have several experts with us who are going to discuss the technical aspects of this. Um, this also comes in a back against a backdrop of, you know, rising protectionism and growing economic nationalism, both in Europe but across the pond. So while that may not affect the discussions directly, it definitely sets the tone and the context and makes this even more interesting. And um, it's clear that whatever happens will not just have implications for the, for the UK and the EU, but maybe the global trading system more broadly. So um, with that, I'm going to leave you to our experts. Just very briefly to tell you who we have here today, we have um, Andres Sapir from Brugge, who you all know. Uh, we have Petros Mavroidis from Columbia University, Jan Wouders from the University of Leuven, and Hosek Lee Makayama from the European Centre for International Political Economy. Um, Andre, would you start? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Victoria. So, uh, indeed, uh, nice to see so, uh, so many people. Uh, I suppose you have mostly come to listen to my uh, legal colleagues, and uh, that's as it should be, uh, because most of this is going to be uh, a, legal, uh, a legal discussion. Uh, what I wanted to do is uh, to provide... Uh, no, I have a problem with this. Okay. No, it, it's, I have a problem with the, the slides. I cannot move the slides. Ah, okay. No, I don't know. Okay, so let me, uh, let me give you the, uh, the main messages. Uh, and if the slides don't work, it's, it's all right. Um, so it seems to me that under almost any scenario uh, that we can imagine, uh, the UK will be leaving uh, the customs uh, union with the, with the EU. If you look at the whole range of possible arrangement uh, post-Brexit, uh, none of them basically, except for the EU-Turkey, uh, is a customs union. And as we know, the EU-Turkey customs union is only a, even a partial customs union. So I think we can take it as a starting point that the UK is leaving the customs union. And that indeed uh, is bringing a number of, of challenges that we have not heard before, neither inside the EU nor inside the WTO. And that's why the discussion today is not just an issue of EU-UK in a bilateral sense, but it's an EU-UK in this, in this global context. Next point is what comes next. Well, what is likely to come next is some kind of a free trade arrangement, even if there is more, if, even if there is some access to the single market. From a trade perspective, this is going to be a free trade area. It means if there is free trade between the two of us, 
the UK and the EU are each going to have their own external trade uh, arrangement. And then comes the question, you know, how will be the trade between the two parties? No customs union, but what kind of customs arrangement can there be? Now, as you know, uh, when you're in a customs, when you're in a free trade area, uh, the different partners need to have rules of origin for trade vis-a-vis -vis third countries. Now, rules of origin means some customs difficulty, right? Some customs administration that slows the process uh, of trade. So, is there a solution to that? Well, I would say, yes, there are potential solutions. One solution, or at least an element of a solution, would be for the UK to adopt, upon exit, the EU external trade schedule, the same schedule, that the, e the UK leaves the EU customs union, but nonetheless keeps the same trade schedule, the same tariffs as the EU has in services, no, in, in manufacturing, and in agriculture. Whether that's realistic or not, that's, that's a question. Probably in manufacturing, yes, maybe in agriculture, less so. But in addition, if we really wanted not to have rules of origin between the two of us, the UK would need to have the same rules of origin as we have. So not only they would need to have the same tariff, the same uh, tariff quotas for, uh, for agriculture, but they would need also to have the same rules of origin. So it's a fairly demanding element, but I think it's feasible. Now, if the UK doesn't do that, either they have their own rules of origin or they have their own tariff schedule, or at least for some products, like agricultural products, they have their own tariff quotas, then there needs to be some element of, of a border management. Now, in today's world, I think there are many ways this can be done electronically, but nonetheless, as we know, this will slow a little bit the, uh, the flow of trade. So I think the real question is now how the uh, rules of the EU and the rules of the WTO need to be taken into account for this relationship between the two partners. So let me give the floor to, uh, to Petros, who will discuss the uh, WTO part, at least. Okay. So do you have the... Uh, you have ah, you have your... No, no, the, the, the slides. Okay, so... Okay, so bedankt voor de uitnodiging, Andre. Thanks much for the invite. It's always great to come back to Brussels. There are so many people. I owe lots of things here too, from Klaus Dieter Ellerman, who made the effort to come, to Jean Victor Lee, who was my professor, to my friends, Mislav Karl over there. It's huge pleasure to be here. And Andre asked me to speak about something totally mundane, which is how the procedures. How does it work once? Once we assume Brexit, and this doesn't work though. Everything works, okay, fine. So my argument is this, I mean, in principle, I mean, you can imagine two negotiations and I don't know, there is nothing like about a sequence, one between um, the EU and the UK, and which will affect or can affect, and one between the, the second negotiation, which is between the UK and the WTO. It's unclear if there's a sequence between the two, whether there should be a sequence between the two processes. And what I will try to explain is we should not overestimate the bite of law here because you can design pragmatic solutions. WTO is flexible enough to take care of the problem, especially since we deal with a case where there is uncharted territory because 
Nobody thought of customs unions breakup when the WTO was designed, the GATT was designed back in the 40s. The idea was the exact opposite, actually. So this doesn't work, Andre. Huh? OK. So I have to say I have a working hypothesis. I assume the European Union does not need another negotiation. Now, the only way, in my view, for EU to avoid the negotiation is to reproduce, as such, the existing schedule. So the EU 28, they haven't ratified. They are back to EU 25 so far. But I think they should certify first the EU 28 and then make it EU 27 without touching one iota of the schedule. Now, why does this make sense? Well, there is a trade-off between um, AMS protection and uh, tariff quotas. The EU might have to import a bit more. Some Europeans might not like it, but they have more money to play with through AMS. And this way, the EU can stay on the background and let the UK do the negotiation with the WTO. I mean, if this working hypothesis, if, if this is realistic, it doesn't affect at all. This is a facilitating condition. I mean, what I say from now on applies to the EU in case EU wants to touch something. We we'll lose a lot of time with this thing, Andre. Okay. So the U, e, uh, UK WTO, I divide in two parts. First, MFN trade, and then preferential trade agreements. The MFN trade, as I said, I mean, that's the, the single most important sentence in the whole presentation. There's nothing in the agreement which discusses head-on breakup of customs unions. The idea of customs unions in the GATT was a faster way towards reduction of tariffs, not a breakup. So eventually, we'll all end up with no tariffs. So if you do a customs union or a free trade area, we facilitate access to the zero tariff world. But of course, now we're confronted with a problem. What do? What do is, well, how can we come back to the situation? We have to construct the UK MFN rate. And what is the UK MFN rate as we 2017? Well, UK will have to deposit a new schedule. Now, they don't have the luxury of the EU. They cannot take, I mean, I think it's highly unrealistic to expect the UK to take the EU schedule and throw it as UK schedule, because then the tariff quotas in the AMS are of such a magnitude, which is, makes it unfeasible for the UK. Now, there is this. So they have to do some adjustments. Then there is the procedure. The procedure is, again, it's unclear, but I think one thing they can use is the 1980 procedure. This is what I've been advocating, at least in the WTO. Because this is the one procedure that has been used liberally for a number of, number of areas where it's not, uh, it has not been thought of as the, pro the proper vehicle, tarification and so on and so forth. Now, what does 1980 mean? This goes by itself now. What's going on, Andre? Uh, ah, whoops. This is amazing. This is not good. Well, I don't know what is happening here, but this is not good. I can tell you. Look, it goes the other way. Anyway, uh, I do. I point there. I point everywhere, no matter where you point. Okay. Um, if there is agreement between UK and the parties, end of the story. But if there is no agreement, well, you have negotiations. Now, disagreement is quite likely. I mean, even if the UK is very liberal, I'll give you just one example. We can talk more later, but. Assume I'm New Zealand or Australia or whoever, and I can raise my hand and say, I'm sorry, no matter what you do, is when you were part of the EU, tariff quotas meant one thing, now they mean a different thing. Within the EU, for whatever reasons, this contraction of demand in the UK, I can supply my stuff in one of the 27 members. 
in the UK tariff quota world, I can go nowhere else. If I can go nowhere else, I'm losing out. If I'm losing out, I need compensation. So I think it's quite normal that people might raise a hand and say, I'm sorry, you can say whatever you wish, but we have to sit down and negotiate. Now, if we sit down and negotiate, very likely for the UK, it's not going to be so simple because <laughs> the negotiation, it's a tricky negotiation. I mean, essentially you have to apply Article 28 because you have modification of schedule, which means we have to come up with a reciprocal deal. Now, what is reciprocity? I think, quite frankly, uh, well, there are these bagus models, but in the real world, it's very difficult to define reciprocity. I love this phrase by Dunkel, reciprocity cannot be described, it can only be agreed. And this is more or less the, this is more the story of the, of the GATT. Now, um, uh, moreover, I mean, it's very difficult to make empirical statements about reciprocity because all these negotiations are in secret documents that nobody can see. We don't know, maybe negotiators do know some of them because they negotiate them, but the majority, people like me, outsiders, who have no idea. Now, the key here is what? The key is, well, we start reciprocal negotiations. We might or might not end up with an agreement. The UK can go ahead and apply its new schedule even in the absence of agreement, but in this case, they might face retaliation from the rest of the world. So I think it's in their best interest to come up with an agreement which will make them be a little bit more liberal than where the EU is maybe nowadays. When it comes to preferential trade, well, uh, and uh, Jan will speak about uh, the European Union uh, law and its application to all sorts of trade issues that the UK will, uh, and he's much better placed than me. I'm not an EU lawyer at all. Uh, but um, uh, first of all, for the agreements that the EU, that's the only EU thing, EU law part I will mention, the agreements between where the UK is now a member that the EU has signed, they have no automatic right to stay in. I understand from Jan, essentially, that mixity means you participate. Yes, you sign, but you participate because of your appurtenance to the European Union. The moment you leave the European Union, you have no automatic right to stay on, which means the UK now has to negotiate with the rest of the world. They can do whatever they want. They can negotiate with whoever they want, but they have no automatic right to stay on the FTAs that the EU has signed with the rest of the world. Now, in this case, um, the relevant body, they have to respect Article 24. The good news about Article 24 is it's, on paper it's demanding. De facto, it's never enforced. Uh, there is only one case where the WTO members agreed an FTA was GATT consistent, the Czechoslovakia case, when uh, the, Czech, the Czech and the Slovak Republic split it into two. There are three more cases where they have broad agreement, but one a genuine case. Why is it not enforced? There's collective action problem. I mean, why should I incur the investment if everybody profits? Strategic thinking, the last bastion of free trade was Mongolia. As of 2015, Mongolia signed an FTA, so now each and every WTO member has at least one FTA. And according to Nolimao's paper, the mean is 13 point something. <laughs> each WTO member has 13 point something FTA signed. Incomplete contracting and so on. So essentially, your hands are free when you negotiate free trade areas. The maximum you can expect is litigation, which, for the reason I mentioned, happens very infrequently. GSP, I don't want to say much. It's, it's up to the UK to decide if they want to keep or not keep. It's up to them. Might face non violation compact. That's science fiction. Now, is the picture different with trade in services? Slightly, but not, um, uh, not very different. There are some UK-specific reservations. UK will have to decide what to do with those reservations in its new schedule. The good thing about services is they will fall against 1980 procedures. 
if, they, if there is disagreement, which is to be expected, although I don't like to speak very much about the future, we have imperfect information, but if there is disagreement, there is a specific procedure in GATS, Article 21. So the moment there is disagreement, then we go to binding arbitration, and that's where they will decide on the adequacy of commitments from either side. So the risk of counter-retaliation counter is minimal. Am I doing okay with time? Now, EU-UK, there are a number of papers. The Hrao discusses Norway, Turkey, etc. options. Should our FTA look this way, that way, be a customs union? Andre with Pisani Ferry and a few other guys wrote a paper where they say, look, I mean, you should not uh, over, overestimate the, the burden, the potential burden by migration. It is not a necessary part of a single market. And a number of papers out there. Well, they, in my view, again, I mean, if at all the, the picture looks favorable, the WTO does not care about deep integration very much. WTO cares about two forms of integration, free trade areas, customs union. Customs union has absolutely nothing to do with migration. Uh, moreover, if you look at the mode four GATS commitment, it's crystal clear in the negotiating record this is not about migration, this is about temporary supply of nothing. So, uh, moreover, you have the risk of litigation, which is quite low, even if we do things which are not 100% kosher, we can do things which uh, don't worry very much. There's not too much of a risk for a head-on litigation against the free trade. So, it's up to the EU and the UK to design whatever they want to design without paying too much attention, I think, to the, reg the regulatory framework of the WTO when it comes to customs union. And with this, I'll stop. And I stayed within 15 minutes. Yeah? You're not upset with me. Oh, not at all. There we are. <clears throat> I decided not to use this, but just give a sign. <laughs> I have three theses I would like to share with you from an EU law point of view. And of course, theses are there to provoke huh, the discussion and so on and we can revisit them. First of all, Article 50 is not about trade. It's about the divorce. Secondly, the divorce deal will have to come first, and only then the EU-UK um, FTA can come. Thirdly, as long as the Euro uh, United Kingdom is a member state, it cannot negotiate trade agreements with third countries. But you see what I put between brackets, soyons pragmatiques. So, let's elaborate on that. First, the UK's position, as it became a bit clearer, I think, in the course of January, early February, we have seen the Lancaster House speech by Theresa May, where she stressed a couple of things that I think clarified uh, things somewhat. She said, we are not seeking membership of the single market, we're seeking the greatest possible access to it through a new, comprehensive, bold, and ambitious free trade agreement. Then we have the government white paper, which many people have said is basically, uh, again, the speech of Theresa May with a couple of additional elaborations, which also speaks of this wide-ranging, uh, reaching bold and ambitious free trade agreement and a new customs agreement with the EU. And also say something about the sequel of things, because it says that we want to have reached an agreement about this future partnership by the time the two-year Article 50 process has concluded. So far, the wish list of the United Kingdom. So first of all, my, my thesis, the Article 50 is not about trade. It's actually a very strange thing. What we are discussing here is we are discussing the withdrawal, unilateral withdrawal. It's a sovereign act of a sovereign state 
under international law. What Article 50 basically does is recognize that withdrawal right, but also unionize the procedure. It's an interesting kind of combination of EU and international law in that sense. It has four main parts. We start, of course, as we all know, with the member state decision to withdraw in accordance with its own national constitutional laws. Nice little question. Is this something under that can be verified by the EU, even by Horesco reference, the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg? That's now, uh, let's say, uh, been done after the court cases, although there are new court cases pending. The second one is the notification to the European Council, and this is, of course, very important because here the two-year time period uh, starts to tick. Notification is expected in the coming weeks, and we are more or less expecting it to be dealt with in March by the European uh, Council. It has a meeting scheduled on the 9th and the 10th of, of March. Uh, what we see here, we know that uh, under the procedure, the European Council will have to adopt guidelines. Very interestingly, on the 15th of December, there's been an informal summit of the 27 uh, that has more or less set out those uh, procedural arrangements indicating that the European Council guidelines will provide the overall framework, also indicating that the European Council remains seized and will continue to follow this up very, very closely. Footnote consensus requirement, so there is some potential for a blockade here, which I'm sure uh, Monsieur Barnier will, have, uh, will, will try to uh, avoid. But then the clock is ticking and we will have the negotiation of the withdrawal uh, uh, agreement. There's a lot to be said about the procedure that is applicable here. Uh, procedural uh, arrangements have been set out in this uh, document of the 15th uh, of December. Interestingly, commission was immediately indicated as the union negotiator. But of course, the negotiating team will be expanded a little bit, rotating presidency, will be some people from the European Council president, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, there is this negotiation process, conclusion of the withdrawal agreement or automatic cessation within two years. Roadblocks, yes, many, plenty of them. Consent requirement of the European Parliament, question whether this is an EU-only agreement or will be seen as a mixed agreement. Remember the CETA saga. And then, of course, will somebody make it and refer it for an opinion to the European Court of Justice? Interesting point. Uh, the Article 50 says the treaty shall cease to apply. If you think carefully about this, because this is an agreement concluded between the UK and the EU, it's not an agreement between the UK and the member states. So in that sense, in a certain way, the real international law foundation for the actual withdrawal and for the stopping of the application is international law. It's a unilateral act of the um, United Kingdom. This withdrawal agreement is, as I said, not about the future trade relationship. It's a divorce treaty. It sets out the arrangements for withdrawal, taking into account, and that's a very strange phrase, the framework for the future relationship with the EU. Now here, too, we have some clarifications. Since December, Mr. Barnier has given a press conference in which he basically indicated it will not be two years. It will be about 15 to 18 months of negotiations. Target date is October 2018. And then we have around four or five months for national ratifications, if all goes well. He also indicated that a new partnership will be discussed in broad terms to give a sense of what the future relationship may look like. This is all really not saying what the white paper is saying about kind of, say, simultaneity of the process for discussing a, a trade a, agreement. And 
Actually, he also was said it's legally impossible for the EU to negotiate a new partnership agreement with uh, the UK covering trade and so on. And I think he has a point there. There's a legal issue, there are political issues and so on, but this has to be negotiated for uh, first. And I'm not saying that one will first have to have ratified this withdrawal agreement. Uh, that's where I become pragmatic at the end. I will be saying, look, the main points of this withdrawal agreement will have to be agreed before there will be indeed talks about the trade um, uh, agreement. What will this withdrawal agreement cover? We don't know yet, but it will surely be about financial aspects, the budget. Uh, what does the UK still get out of the EU funds? Uh, how much will it need to pay for it? What about participation in the single market? The question of transitional arrangements for free movement of goods, persons, services, and so on. Also, of course, authorizations. The status of authorizations given by EU agencies, and so on and so forth. Third part, participation of the EU in the foreign relations arena. Think about participation in military missions of the EU, and so on. And then there is, of course, still this 60 billion euro question, which will definitely come up in those talks. Yes. Now, if we go for an EU-UK FTA, when and how? I think when, most likely when the withdrawal agreement, the, the divorce agreement is mainly in place. As I said, we won't need to wait for ratification saga and so on, but I think otherwise it will not be possible to really discuss this. Um, and then how? Well, here it's not Article 50. It will be the regular treaty procedures for making international trade agreements. So in other words, you could make a comparison with CETA. I've listed here the legal basis for the CETA uh, agreement in EU law. So that's a lot of legal base. That's not just CCP. There will definitely be elements of mixity in this whole question. Remember also the Singapore uh, opinion that is currently pending before the European Court. So there is Article 218 that will apply. And there is, of course, the looming shadow of the CETA saga of last autumn. Will 38 parliaments become involved? Big question. And even provisional application may be cumbersome, as you know. Remember CETA, this was just about signature and provisional application. It was not yet about ratification. Time limit. The two-year time period, say, in the white paper is highly optimistic because if you look at CETA, seven years, EU-Korea, four years. The Commission usually takes three to four years for negotiating a new, um, say, trade agreement. Last but not least, what can the UK do as long as it is, is it a member of the European Union? Well, here I refer to an interesting op-ed written in the Telegraph on the 18th of October, who basically told me we can do everything, we can start doing great trade deals before we leave the European Union. Problem, common commercial policy is an exclusive competence. You are not allowed to do anything. There is also the principle of sincere cooperation. And there is, if you look at it more closely, a big risk of all kinds of conflicts of interest involved. When the UK knows uh, of ongoing negotiations, EU positions, and then it starts its own kind of parallel uh, negotiations with a particular third country, this will, of course, give rise to very, very delicate uh, situations. UK Chancellor Philip Hammond has been much more, uh, say, vocal on uh, strictly respecting EU membership obligations of the UK, and I, I think he gave a tweet on the, th this is very popular nowadays, as you know, he gave a tweet on the 31st of uh, January, I think chronologically just before Theresa May uh, met with the US president, in which he basically highlighted that uh, the UK wants to strengthen trade ties, but is very mindful of their obligations under the treaty and will follow them precisely. At an earlier location in July, having uh, gone to China, the Chancellor basically said, we cannot do much more than informal explorations. 
Soyons pragmatique, my vision here is that in some way or the other we will have to find a kind of accommodation. We will have to see indeed that we reconcile the interests of the EU with the interests of the UK and maybe have some kind of, if you wish, toleration for the UK to conduct exploratory talks, which basically when uh, membership uh, stops will, uh, um, say, uh, be followed up by quick negotiations uh, in order to avoid discontinuity. Thank you very much. Well, the good thing uh, about following up Jon and Petrus is that there are very few things left to say, and it seems like a cliche for the designated commentator. And, um, but the good thing is that I actually appear for once a little bit moderate and balanced. Um, I'm going to try to make my views on the given presentations, but I want to be very, very clear that uh, actually, the China's WTO ambassador wants to call me a second-rate lawyer. And I be believe that actually at least two European commissioners called me a third-rate economist. Uh, so please bear in mind that take this with a pinch of salt. Um, but I will mostly comment because of there have been very legal presentations. And before I start, I'd like to point out something that we don't take as much for granted nowadays, but EU law is not like any other law. It's a very dynamic form of law in the similar school of, let's say, international treaty law. And I like to say that in this context, as very often in the past, when you reach the point of high politics, laws cease to matter. Lawyers don't matter anymore. Basically, laws are what the political objectives designate us to act. So from the laughter, I can hear that there are quite a few lawyers in here. But this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is the intergovernmental and uh, yeah, uh, the treaty form of EU nature. And I, I notice this very often uh, when I teach um, young lawyers that there has been a, quite a shift in the past 15, 20 years. Uh, when I got my degree 20 years ago, uh, certainly it was a school of international treaty law. Now, I, I believe that it is now very much taught in the school of constitutional law. And so we've lost a part of the dynamic element of EU law. And I like to maintain that, actually, that much of the legal analysis that we have done and I've read doesn't really matter anymore. This is the true nature of... Uh, actually the inter-European diplomacy. But having said that, there are certain things that do matter. And um, let me highlight a few points. Um, let's start with the EU-UK, the divorce settlement. And I, I do absolutely agree with the comments that this is very much a divorce settlement, amicable divorce, if you like, but it's still a divorce. Uh, which means that there are actually summer houses and there are going to be a few um, bank accounts that is at stake. And there's something that is very different uh, from this trade negotiation of Article 50 and uh, the, um, the future relationship with the EU UK, uh, where I would actually agree, uh, where I would actually say that the previous experience of 
trade negotiations like TTIP, CETA, doesn't actually matter. Let me explain to you why. Because this divorce settlement is going to be built on the dynamics of status quo. And actually, a lot of European politics now is about trying to maintain status quo to the extent it is possible. Status quo in a trade negotiation, let's say CETA, is no agreement. Status quo in Brexit is actually an agreement. It is an interest of the both parties to try to replicate the <laughs> current legal basis to the furthest extent possible in the most pragmatic manner. So, which in a sense, when people talk about deadlines, anyone who negotiates an agreement of any kind will tell you that there is no such thing as artificial deadlines in a negotiation as long as both parties want to have an outcome. And with 60 billion euros on the table, there will be an active interest, at least from the perspective of Europe, to actually have an agreement. We should not actually forget about it. From my perspective, and if, I, if I'm a second and third-rate economist, I think I'm a first-class political cynical with honors. And uh, the only deadline I can see is elections. And it's not going to be any of the European elections or the European Parliament elections. We're actually talking about, well, the, the future of the Tory party until it actually comes into stake. I don't think there is actually a deadline to talk of. And continue on that route, uh, I'll just see the points that I wrote down here. The, um, the withdrawal agreement that Jan points to is, in the end, I mean, it can be a legal act of the size of the Article 50 proclamation in the UK. It can just, it can't be one paragraph, but certainly it doesn't necessarily need to be the final defined relationship or what the divorce settlement is going to be. I believe that it is very possible that you have a number of transitional agreements and therefore you can meet the deadline. You don't need to meet the deadline and you don't actually have to define what the state is at the point of deadline. This is the true nature of what I talked before. Politics will trump law. Legals will need clarity. The political leadership will not. This is the big difference between the EU of the past and the current generation of EU lawyers, if you like. And this is sort of the return to the old mode of uh, how we used to do the agreements in the past. And therefore, if I look at the scenario of hard Brexit, I think it will only happen if UK, or actually the hardcore backbenchers, the Brexiteers, actually want it and they seize power. This is the only scenario where I will actually see a hard Brexit happening. And, well, it's a kind of an Emperor Nero kind of strategy. You know, let it burn. And whatever. The political objective is, is so valuable that actually the economic consequences is almost irrelevant. Trump comes to mind, but never mind. So, um, Andre, you pointed at two possible outcomes. Uh, sorry, uh, CU and... FTA, and you actually write off the CU as a potential outcome. I won't be so quick. Let me explain to you why. Um, one, uh, I have the unfortunate background of actually being a member state representative on trade, and one of the most 
insightful meetings I had was with, I come from Sweden, and I met with a Swedish manufacturing giant and who told me actually to determine that an item that they manufacture in the machinery business could take their best customs lawyer up to six months, a year. Rules of origin matter. And so I asked them, so okay, so if it takes your best customs lawyer six months to define that it is actually made in EU or Sweden in that case, how many products do you have? 10,000. So in order to even qualify for EEA rates or FTA rates, you would actually, you would have to qualify through rules of origin. And this is not a minor cost. And especially if you have auto industry based in the UK, you have heavy machineries that recently has been opened up as a main area of industrial policy. So this is going to matter. And as you were correctly saying, to actually to disintegrate a market, existing market integration has never really been done before. So the damages of actually breaking global supply chains, uh, actually regional supply chains in this case, is considerable. They won't be able to qualify for actually even the preferential rates that we might negotiate between the EU and the UK. The second reason I think the customs union scenario is not, should not be written off is not only because of rules of origin and the interest of the UK, but also it comes partly to the fact that the other three freedoms <laughs> barely exist. There is no European single market on services. I'm being a little bit rude now when I see former colleagues on the services side either nodding in secret in agreement and some actually want, may actually want to persecute me. But it is true. I mean, if you look at it, if you look at the most of the UK, for example, banking that has been mentioned many times as a main interest, uh, it is very clear that the most of the major UK banks either have no operations or no risk exposure, at least, on the continent. Or if they do, they already incorporate it on the continent. They are completely unaffected by Brexit. The only problem they might have is that if they can't have intercorporate transfers between the, from the UK and the EU. And we know for a fact from the, well, it's not a fact, it's actually a point of personal opinion, that the, uh, the basis of services directive and also the continued negotiations around the service, uh, updating the services directive is very, very different. I, I would even argue that there is very little exposure for UK overall on services from Brexit, with two exceptions. One is foreign investment, Citibank, Nomura, and also Sumitomo Bank, and these major banks are actually invested in the UK and they passport themselves into Europe. But this is the only case. If, you're, if you don't, actually don't care about the FDIs, and you may even consider it to be a current account problem, then you're basically saying, okay, this is actually has no bearing. And at least for the political layer, the exposure uh, through passporting is a minor problem. Citibank doesn't actually yield that many votes in the Tory party. Uh, the second aspect where actually services matter is in data privacy because it affects all companies across the board. This is one of the few areas where actually there might be a services disruption between the EU, UK and the EU, basically because unless you have an adequacy decision, 
UK companies will not be able to actually build a database of their EU customers. They can't do business. It's going to be extremely difficult to export services. Um, so I'm not going to write them off. Uh, so I think CU is definitely on the table. And, um, and also the question about FTA, I'm <coughs> sorry, the UK FTAs. I would like to ask the question, and this is something that I've asked the Brexiteers many, many times over. I never really got an answer to this question. Why would the UK want to negotiate on FTAs? I do understand it's a political imperative. I know it looks pretty cool, but give me a real reason why UK would need to negotiate its own FTA. And especially if you're, for example, stuck in the customs union, they say in the Turkey option, okay, we can't negotiate our own tariffs, true, on NAMA, non-agricultural manufacturing, basically. But everything else, you can negotiate services, agriculture, investment, regulations. So you have to ask yourself the question, what is that Brexiteers want to do on machinery tariffs and chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and electronics? And in EU FTA, these go down to zero, almost without no exception. What is that Brexit, Brexiteers would like to do so different from what EU is currently doing? And there is no real good answer to that. Is it because you want to do FTAs with other countries? That might be a valid point. But then you come down to the question of sequencing. First, you need to negotiate and establish your own WTO schedule. I'll come back to that in a moment, because I think Petros did a very good job in explaining that as well. Uh, Second, you will probably need to grandfather existing FTAs that UK is already committed. For example, South Korea, Peru, Andean Community, CETA is next, Singapore. And if the Japan agreement happens before Brexit, UK will be banned by that as well. And then comes the question of non-EU, sorry, third country FTAs that EU has not negotiated with. I don't really see... I mean, I'm, I'm being rational here now, and I may be a little bit orthodox in my thinking around FTAs. I don't really see UK would have a diverging interest from the EU in terms of negotiation. And even if it did, a US FTA has been on the talks now because of uh, Theresa May's recent visit to DC. But what can UK achieve on its own that it couldn't actually deliver by leveraging on 27 other member states. I mean, we are looking at issues from the US side, financial regulation, which is a main offensive interest for UK. It's a constitutional barrier for United States. United States can't put it on the table because it's a, there's a constitutional restriction about state competence. And therefore, if we muster together all the offers that we put from EU, for, for the sake of UK offensive interest, and we still didn't manage to deliver it. I'm not really sure the puny beef quotas that UK will be able to table is going to actually matter that much. And so having said that, the normal orthodoxy in trade negotiation is that you start small. You start with the, uh, the smaller bids, for example, countries like Chile, New Zealand, South Korea, are they usually the countries, Singapore as well, these are the countries you start with. Then you leverage where you up to the higher. You negotiate with Japan before you negotiate with China. 
before you negotiate with Japan, you negotiate with Korea. This is how the logical sequencing works. What UK is now doing is the reverse logic of what you do in trade negotiation. It's a little bit like playing the hard setting on the last course of angry birds before you actually finish the tutorial. <laughs> this makes no sense. I like to throw in a popular culture reference now and then. I may have to interrupt you here. Yeah, uh, I'm just going to be very quick about then the WTO and the TRQs. I don't agree necessarily that it's going to be an easy or uneasy settlement, but one thing is very clear. EU and the UK will have to negotiate on the same side of the table. Once we have a divorce settlement, amicable divorce settlement on the table, this is going to be notified, actually ratified by the rest of the world. Uh, it's very much like a notary process of our divorce settlement. It is true. And let me share one anecdote to why it might be complicated. Number one, actually establishing the EU schedule after the Eastern Europeans joined took more than five years. And that's an easy process. It's moving from one column to the other. Yeah, I, I see the guys from DG Trade nodding. No, it's not easy. I, I, for the sake of this conversation, let's just say that it's easy. <laughs> it's actually easy compared to actually splitting it. The second uh, point is the TRQs. This is where the main beef is. We are talking about B quotas from, uh, we have uh, Brazil and Argentina. We have also, uh, we have beef quotas from Canada and the United States and Australia, which are residual from the GMO cases that we, uh, sorry, the hormone beef cases we had. We have dairy quotas, and we have also um, sugar quotas uh, from Mercosur as well. And here's the problem. They will not be satisfied by us simply splitting a quota. If I'm UK and we have the rest of the table being EU, and we have currently a sugar quota of 100, it's not okay to split them at 30 and 70 because you lose the flexibility. If the UK market is slumping, they can actually export to the EU market and vice versa. They lose the flexibility. They will want 110 in order to compensate for loss of the liberty. The main difference here, I think, is that we are actually negotiating FTAs with almost everyone who has a quota. New Zealand, dairy, we are negotiating FTAs. So whatever we can do in the TRQ split, we can probably do in the separate FTA. The only exception that I can think of is the American quotas, how that will be settled on beef. And Obama administration, of course, actually filed a new case on hormone beef. So I'll end on that point. And final conclusion of this, I think, is that it's, we are not necessarily always talking about Brexit. It's not about leaving, per se. We're actually talking about a bigger sphere of questions. In the past, we had one process, joining the EU, association agreement. Everything is veered towards actually a meteorite crashing into Earth. Now we are in a situation, actually, UK, a number of countries, I would even argue almost every one of the ones in the association agreement, want to actually circle the Earth EU without being a part or consumed by it. And we need to define what that relationship is. And that's going to be an extremely hard thing to do, politically. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, some very interesting presentations here, raising more questions than answering them. 
Um, I just, uh, before I ask a couple of questions and then give floor to the audience, I just wanted to ask you if you have anything very, very quick to say in response to everyone else's presentations or whether I should just kick off without asking a couple of things. Okay, cool, okay, cool. Well, I just had two questions, uh, I guess one to my, my left-hand side and one to my right-hand side. Um, you both mentioned the example of CETA and how that was a bit of a traumatic experience for the EU. Um, but you had a divergent views in the sense that, I mean, I thought the status quo point was really interesting about how CETA was about changing it, whereas the, break, the, the UK deal would be about keeping it. But still, <laughs> it's just my question is still like, you know, given that the Singapore, okay, we have the advocate general opinion, we don't have the final opinion, but given where this is going, it seems that it would be highly unlikely a deal with the UK wouldn't be a mixed agreement. And I just wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think that maybe smaller players in the EU could use that, you know, the parliamentary power to, to leverage things and draw this process out and create more complications that we could anticipate. And then um, just on, on tariff uh, rate quotas, am I right to identify this as one of the key, if not the key problem um, in the WTO negotiations and the whole schedule situation? And uh, how likely do you think the possibility of, not quite an accident, but you know, the possibility of a country coming up and blocking this and dragging on the, the situation as much as possible, how likely do you think that would be? I don't know who wants to start with Concita or tariff rate quotas. Let, let, let me say a word on the on the tariff rate quota. I, I, I want to insist on the on the on the proposal that Petros made, uh, because maybe it got lost in uh, in the other stuff. Uh, and I, th I think it's. A, I mean, we have been discussing this. I think I think it's a it's a, it's a very very important uh, proposal. Now, whether it's feasible, and in particular on the tariff rate quota, is 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 a different matter. So what he's saying is that the uh, EU. Uh, the EU 27 uh, should adopt the EU 28 tariff schedule. Okay? And where that matters is not obviously for uh, non-agricultural products, because there there is no, no, no change. It's really about the agricultural products, and in particular, uh, the tariff rate quota, <laughs> but there is also the, uh, the support uh, issue. So there he's saying, okay, if at the moment, you know, the, the example of the 70 and the 30, uh, Petros's example is, okay, at the moment we have a tariff rate quota of 100 units for the 28. The EU 27 adopts the 100 and then let the UK deal with its own uh, tariff rate quota. And in a sense, that takes the EU away from the negotiation. Okay? Now, whether that's feasible or not, that's a separate matter. And I think that when one really has to, uh, feasible from a political viewpoint, right? Uh, one has to look product by product, the sugar, the beef, uh, the different product, and see, you know, is that possible? That's obviously the cleanest, uh, the cleanest way of doing it. I think it's, it's a great, great proposal. Because instead of having both the EU and the UK having to negotiate at the WTO, the EU is out of these negotiations. Leave it entirely to, to the UK. But the price is that the, U, the EU has to adopt the, the full 100. But they have AMS to play. I mean, so there is a trade-off. The reason why I made this point is that it's twofold. First, there's a trade-off. Yes, you import more, which is not necessarily bad. You and I were free traders. Uh, but on the other hand, I understand political economy and how it works when it comes to farm trade. You have AMS to play more. But second, I think the key is and uh, this is why, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of splitting at all. Even if you split in the most 
kosher manner, you find the most acceptable split. New Zealand, Australia, anyone can say, I'm losing something. And that's what I was trying to say. I'm losing one thing. Demand contraction in the UK, I cannot throw my goods to Hungary, Slovakia, Germany, Sweden. So even if it is a split, what do I care? And I don't want to lose this right to circulate goods around Europe. Now, I don't care how you calculate it, you pay me in case you split the tariff quota. And of course, there is negotiating. I mean, there's the EU, I assume, you have fixed negotiating resources. You don't have six trillion people to negotiate things. So you have one negoci a huge negotiation less by adopting the EU 28 schedule for EU 27. One big negotiation less. Is Let the Brits pay the price of Brexit. Why should you, you Europe pay? Um, is there anything, Osita, that you'd like to say about? Sure. Uh, let me first just make a comment on here. I think Petra's proposal is fabulous. Uh, I don't think the farmers in the EU, uh, EU 27, think so. Um, the main problem, I would say, is in that there, well, it's not so much, for example, if, if I would just, in my head, just go through the products. Um, Sugar, these quotas come from Romania-Bulgaria accession uh, from Brazil, so that shouldn't really be a problem. Uh, if I look at dairy, major problem, because the world prices are now at low, and we have major overcapacities, and it's the same thing on the beef side. Uh, there is, um, and UK is not really offensive on beef, so I would say, and also, Australia and New Zealand, I don't think, are the main problems, uh, partly because we are negotiating an FTA with them, and they are very early in the queue of the UK third-party negotiations. So, yeah, I wouldn't give that answer as given, obviously, uh, because of the, basically how the world markets look now. Uh, on the CETA question, I would say that CETA is probably a very... Not, not a very bad, but it's not the most appropriate template for what the future relationship between the UK and the EU should look like. Uh, the problems that exist between Canada and the EU is not the same market access problems you would have between the UK and the EU post-Brexit. I would argue that, considering that I'm now assuming that we have either a CEU or basically a blanket zero, uh, across the board, and we already adopted many of, well, what well, we, basically UK is by default EEA compliant. Uh, so the, it really comes down to a few bilateral letters uh, to make sure that we remain open in terms of regulatory barriers. I would argue that perhaps TTIP is the better template, and I'm sure that there has been ideas that has been floated. And bear in mind that EU proposal on TTIP, on regulation, has been accepted by all EU28, including UK. It would be very strange to say that, okay, UK would suddenly leave, and this, uh, this offer is not actually on the table anymore amongst ourselves. Uh, whether it will be abused by a small country or a sub-federal statehood uh, with its own foreign policy, it is possible. I mean, of course, I mean, and this is the reason why this is going to be an intergovernmental negotiation rather than a commission-led process. Um, I would say it's not, it's not impossible, but I, there, here again, I would use the status quo argument. 
and uh, that it is actually in the interest of preserving status quo for all parties. And whenever you have issues like this, that there, you, you don't actually have a stake, you don't have a beef in the fight, so you think, okay, I can get something else if I make a trouble. Uh, it happens every day in the WTO, uh, because in the WTO everyone has a veto. I remember myself when we were negotiating actually um, a tariff on uh, data flows. It's very complicated, but anyway, universal agreement except for Cuba because Cuba wanted to lift the US sanctions on electronic products uh, on the island. And, but even in such cases where Cuba actually had nothing to lose to actually be hard-bent, we managed to basically bully sweet talk into, into the fold. And if, we can, if you can talk sense with Cuba, I'm quite sure that you can talk sense with Valonia, to be very, very explicit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, now it's uh, your turn to ask questions. Just uh, whoever, yes, just if you can just identify yourselves. Thank you. Kurt Geisert, Association of uh, German SMEs. I have a question for Professor Wouters. Several countries were mentioned as possible uh, models uh, for the upcoming uh, negotiations. Switzerland, Norway, Turkey, for example. Given the size of population and the economic weight, is it not most probable that Turkey might serve as a model? Thank you. Um, I'd say maybe take one more and then we can answer up. Yes, over here at the front. Uh, Glenn Ford from Polynt. As uh, a former member of the European Parliament, I take a view that in the end it will be the politics rather than the, the law that is going to determine the outcome. Uh, on that basis, the, well, the discussions at the moment in Berlin and London are moving along the lines of a possible kind of using the Ukraine Association Agreement as a model for the UK. Uh, how would that fit into your, uh, if you want, your, your own discussions as a, as a possible outcome and what will be the problems and what will be the opportunities? Okay, thank you. Maybe let's start with the Turkey question. Okay. I'm not sure why the Turkey question was addressed to me. Uh, but because I already answered it. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that they don't want any of those models and that they have this, I mean, they discarded that. They don't want to have the EA, they don't want to have the, uh, the Norway, the Switzerland plus and what have you. So, I mean, I, I guess also the Turkey model will not, will not uh, maybe fly. So I think that in that sense uh, they are looking. They were looking for something that was not yet captured by the imagination of the think tanks before. There was a let's go for a free, uh, comprehensive free trade agreement. Okay, and uh, who wants to talk about Ukraine association? Um, I mean, Ukraine uh, would still be a free trade area. So we are still back. I mean, in the end, for the trade, from a trade viewpoint, there's only two models here. There's only the customs union of free trade area. That's all there is. All the rest is additional, okay? Uh, you can go as deep as you want, single market and all of those elements. Still, the agreement that we have with uh, Norway or with Switzerland is a free trade area. So for the discussion that we're having here, if we put this in, into a trade discussion, it's all there is. Customs union of free trade area. And the only customs union that we have 
is with Turkey. There's no other customs union. Okay, forget about uh, Monaco and uh, so, you know, no, I mean, I'm serious. So, you know, this is, this is not relevant. The only WTO member with whom we have a free, we have a customs union is Turkey. All the other countries with whom we have trade arrangement, non-EU countries, are free trade areas. So, I mean, that's why my viewpoint is that, uh, I, I, and I fully agree with Osuk. I mean, number one is the politics. Number two is the politics of common interests. We have huge amount of common interests here. So to find an agreement and a deep agreement uh, along the lines, okay, what we had proposed, the uh, continental partnership or something of that nature, which I think is still, it's a, still feasible, uh, I think it's, it's a very good idea. But nonetheless, as far as trade is concerned, those are free trade areas. I think the customs union is is not really feasible, but you know, why not? I mean, uh, if, if, it could, if it could be done, I would not be. But when you look at all of the range of trade agreements that we in the EU have with partners, they are all free trade agreements, all of them except Turkey. So the, it's the most unlikely, but it could happen. I'm not saying it cannot happen, but it's the most unlikely, it's the unique. So whether you're talking of Ukraine, you're talking of all these, they are always free trade areas. But they are deep free trade areas. Whether you're talking of TTIP, you're talking of Canada, they're all free trade agreements. So there are only two types in the WTO, free trade agreements or customs unions, one or the other. There's not a third type. That's it. Ukraine. Uh, I'll try to be as explicit as I can. I think the microphone is working, so you can hear me. Um, yeah. um, DCFTA imposes a conditionality uh, on the technical implementation, and especially on regulation. Based on that, you basically achieve more market access. The more you take on of the acquis, the more market access you have. It is actually counterintuitive in the UK-EU relationship, because actually at this moment, Objectively speaking, UK is a part of the acquis. There is no implementation issue. There is a de-implementation issue if you would have regulatory divergence. You can actually assure that easier in a non-DCFTA construct by saying, well, if UK adopts, well, regular overview, for example, of uh, uh, implementation and so forth. So the, the, uh, the phase-in aspect of DCFTA, I would say, doesn't actually make sense. You can find better templates than DCFTA if that's what you're looking for. Uh, this is the reason why I think most people are now, when they talk about Brexit in an FTA scenario, they're looking at CETA++ without actually defining what the first or the second plus is. And this is the reason why at least one of the pluses, I think, is the regulatory aspect of TTIP. The, uh, the second question about customs union, I just want to be very, very clear by giving you two data points. The utilization rate of Norway of EEA rates is 30%. So only 30% of Norwegian exporters think it's actually worthwhile to bother to go through the rules of origin. Turkey is almost 100. There is a huge difference. And these things matter. Thank you. Um, I see some questions over there. Um, first at the back, and then whatever is easier. Yeah, my name is Andreas. I'm a German lawyer and a PhD researcher at Kaulöwen. I would like to refer also to this um, idea of politics being superior to uh, the law. 
Um, this refers more or less to what uh, Professor Wouters also called, and maybe some law philosophers, the authority of law, so the establishment of the rule of law in, international, uh, in the international realm. And what would interest me is to ask you, well, within the EU, this formal supremacy of EU law was mainly based on Van Genden laws and the Costa Enel. So uh, it is a technique to formally make the law superior or um, to, to create the effectiveness of uh, also trade in the law or through the law. So the question would be, can you imagine that um, because in, the, uh, in, in Britain the supremacy of EU law was a big problem, uh, uh, enforcing or somehow supporting the Brexit, can you imagine that Britain is going to search on an international level for a new model of effectiveness of international law um, as compared to European law? And would, for example, the WTO provide some sort of platform for that? So could that, for example, establish a new search for the effectiveness of international law beside or aside from the supremacy of EU law in the EU? And then there's another question at the back over there. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. My name is Marek Maas. I'm from a Belgium development NGO. So my question is about the EU FTAs. Uh, the UK has ratified most of the European FTAs as it is also a partner to these agreements. Um, when it, one problem with the EU FTAs is that it has an article that says this agreement is only valid within the territory of the EU. So from the moment that the UK leaves, this agreement does not apply to them. So how can this be fixed? What is the easiest fix to grandfather an FTA? Is it, is it a unilateral statement by the UK that it will honor its commitments under the whatever? So what is, it, what is the minimum and the fastest things that can happen so that developing countries can continue to use their market access to the EU, which they had under the FTAs? Okay. Thank you. And maybe shall we take a third one at the front and then we answer? Thank you. I'm Philippe de Baro from Balen Bellis. Um, a lawyer, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> I have a question for Petros, and, and excuse me if it's very technical, but I understood there's a difference in the way the goods schedules and the service schedules of the EU will have to be treated. I understood that the goods schedule has been notified and has been certified uh, also uh, by that the EU has notified it on behalf also of its member states while the service schedule has only been notified on behalf of the EU. So would you agree that this would mean that the UK could just continue to apply its good schedule, and if someone does not agree with that, can eventually raise a non-violation complaint, while for services there would be a positive obligation to submit a new schedule? Maybe, uh, Hosuk, would you like to start on the... Um International law and the UK question, the first one. Uh, I think it was more for Petros, but uh, I'll make a quick attempt. Uh, I think there are two points I'd like to make. The first one is that, yes, uh, the supremacy of EU law is a problem, I think, not only for the UK, but for a number of countries. You can even say that it, that supremacy could only exist, was allowed to exist, given that there was a functional interest in the European project. And I think that if you look at Brexit now, in hindsight, let's say from 20 years from now, the history will tell a completely different narrative on Brexit 
which may have more to do with how EU changed its mode of integration from negative market integration to positive, and whether the mode of the positive didn't actually fit the UK market model. The second point I would say that, the, uh, as you correctly pointed out, in terms of the, um, the current environment for market integration, if you like, beyond the EU, is increasingly transactional, even before Trump. And therefore, you would even say that actually the model that the UK is employing is, if it wasn't for the fact that they were so dependent on the EU market, UK is better prepared for transactional economic diplomacy than the EU template-based model. That's what I would say. The, uh, the questions around the ratification, uh, I might just want to come in very quickly on that. Part, if I'm not mistaken, it's partly because of uh, Lisbon, the difference between the, uh, the services and the goods schedule, why it is EU on behalf of its member states versus EU, it's Lisbon happening in between. So it mainly reflects our internal legal order rather than the relationship between the WTO. The second point around NVCs, I, I find NVCs extremely interesting. But the problem when it comes to raising an NVC case, I believe, is the difficulty to actually establish evidence. I can almost hear Jenny Hillman's voice booming in my head and say, where is the evidence? What, where are the legal facts? So I, yeah, to raise a case on the behalf of lost market access through Brexit might prove to be very, very difficult. Um, yes, but would you like to answer the question about this? I think for both, there's an EU schedule for both. So what, there's the overlap is 1980s. Sorry to be technical. They will start with 1980 procedures for both. The difference is, what do you do in case where we don't find an agreement? Remember, I assume, I assume that Europe wants to stay out. Now, if Europe does not want to stay out, if Europe wants to negotiate with 164 minus 27, it's a lot, huh? a number of negotiations. If, if European officials have nothing better to do and they want to negotiate, then they can play the game the way Dr. Lee Makiyama suggested by splitting the TRQs. But if Europe stays out and the UK negotiates... Sorry, yeah. Pedro, split. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to, to know, if the EU doesn't do anything, they don't negotiate, they just sit, yeah. and the UK does the same on goods. <laughs> and they, they accept the... What, what will the UK... What is the UK schedule? The EU schedule? Well, fantastic. I mean, well, fantastic then. I mean, if the UK can apply the EU schedule for goods and services, it's irrelevant. Only for services. They want to apply the whole EU schedule and accept 5,000 banks. I don't know what all the European commitments. The only difference I saw in the schedules is the reservations. There are some UK-specific reservations and services. The, the, I don't think the UK even contemplates of applying the EU schedule and services from the little I discussed with the WTO people. The difference will be if they don't find an agreement in services, they go to binding arbitration. It doesn't exist in goods. In goods, you end up with uh, retaliation and counter-retaliation. Uh, yeah, like yeah, on the two first questions, uh, the one of uh, Andreas and Mark, I think in, in both cases, the answer is basically going back to international law. What does it mean? In Mark's question on the, uh, um, the existing FTAs, yes, indeed, but that cannot be fixed by just a unilateral statement of the United Kingdom that they would like to continue to be engaged in those. No, you need consensus of all the parties. So in a certain way, you need a new instrument. You need something like you know, a, a new treaty, whatever form it takes. 
in which all the parties agree that the UK can continue to be involved in that kind of agreement. But it requires consensus under international uh, treaty law from all the uh, contracting parties. Uh, there's another thing here which may be interesting to point at. We will live in a UK without the uh, European Communities Act. So the United Kingdom will need something like a special act of parliament to deal with the domestic legal status of those uh, remaining international treaty agreements, uh, commitments that it has in a uh, kind of EU FTA uh, type of context. On the question of Andreas, we can further discuss that when we're back in, in, in Leuven, of course. But I think it's here, too, that you see that the UK, in its white paper, it's very interesting to see why they put annexes to their white paper with just all kinds of examples that they hark together from uh, dispute settlement mechanisms in, in all kinds of international trade treaties. Why are they doing that? Because they're desperately looking for a replacement of this supremacy and direct effect of EU law. They don't want that anymore. They don't want a new kind of European Court of Justice kind of system. So they're now looking for, let's look for something that uh, we can enforce when there are problems, when there are issues of interpretation. But please, by all means, let's not go back to Van Gent and Loos and Costa versus Inel. Um, yes, more questions. Uh, there is one at the very back over there. Sorry? Uh, it's just at the very back, the lady over there. Hello, my name is uh, Christine Hattin. Uh, just a question to the panel. Um, the UK has also decided on the defense side to uh, stay in NATO, to stay and ally with the EU. My question is about the industries that are directly affected by uh, the Brexit. I work in chemical, pharmaceuticals, uh, biologics. Uh, SECA was part of a steel uh, defense industry. So um, can you explain your point of view on what happened or do you see that strategic industries may be uh, less affected? Thank you. Um, there's another question up here. I don't know if it's... And then we'll do the two on that side. I'm Jonathan Stearns from Bloomberg News. I have a quick question for Mr. Mavridis and for Mr. Lee Makiyama. On the tariff rate quota question, I can see that it makes sense technically or strategically for the EU to say, fine, we take over the tariff rate quota and let the UK, and we don't get involved in the WTO negotiations. But isn't that politically unrealistic if you think that, for example, half of the New Zealand, half of the EU quota for New Zealand lamb goes to the UK? I mean, are the French and the Germans? And secondly, from a strategic point of view, isn't it better to have, if you think of the UK as, as your adversary in this respect, to have the UK have to deal with the fact that New Zealand may not be happy with a split, whatever it is, 50-50, so that in fact there's a strategic advantage for the EU not to do, not to, uh, to get a tooth split. First question on that. And for Mr. Lee Makiyama, you made the point at the opening of your discussion or remarks that high politics matter and when, when you reach the state of high politics, the law ceases to matter. You then went on to talk about how important the rules of origin are, uh, which is about as technical a thing as you can get in trade. So what does matter? Does, do, do technical things like the rule of origin matter, or is high politics going to define the, the end result of that? Um, okay, so we'll just answer these and then take the questions on the side over there. Um, yes, yeah. I have some time still. Uh, right, who would like to answer the question on defense and the industry? 
Okay, you go first and then also answer. Oh, if there is there anyone of the gentleman? Okay, you take the fifth on that one. Well, um, I would say like this: uh, defense is a very peculiar sector. Yeah, I would even argue that it's not even an economic sector in itself. Uh, I think the um, the Lancaster House agree. Uh, sorry, Lancaster House speech. The locus of that speech was very carefully chosen. That's where the strategic cooperation between UK and France was signed. We are now in living in a symbiosis where actually UK and France cannot actually deploy any soldiers outside, well, not, not even outside of its barracks unless both parties cooperate. There's a deep going integration of chain of command and resources basically a lend-lease program between UK and France that was signed in Lancaster House. Uh, this, of course, goes to the strategic cooperation uh, on the industrial side as well. So this goes above the pay grade of whatever EU discussions we will have. This might even go higher up than NATO. That's the first point. On the chemical side, I would say this is one of the questions where UK will face a dilemma. Do you want to maintain market access to the single market, or do you actually want to get out of reach, which is the chemical industry see as a basically a straitjacket and uh, a bullet in the head? And there is not a single chemical company in the world who has not raised market access complaints against reach. I'm not saying it's a bad regulation. I'm just saying that there are a lot of people out there saying that it's a bad regulation. Uh, on the question around, uh, well, I missed the question about grandfathering of the FTAs. I'm pretty sure that the process is already ongoing. It's a minor adjustment, but I would argue that these FTAs uh, that we have signed now with Korea and Peru and Canada are relatively easy to adjust and to be ratified from both sides when they are ready. Uh, and on the TRQ question, uh, Lamb, as you took as an example, and the New Zealand quotas. New Zealand has quotas on lamb, dairy, and also a few quotas on beef. And on the lamb, it's not a problem because they can't actually exhaust the current quotas. They, they don't even use 100, it, using like 80s. I think the utilization rate is somewhere in the mid 80s. And it's simply because, well, most of the lamb actually end up in the Chinese market because we can't pay that kind of prices for New Zealand lamb. Uh, on the dairy, there's relatively generous quota, and that's where I pointed that might be minor issues. But I think the major quota problem is not going to be with New Zealand. It's going to be with beef with countries that we are not negotiating FTAs with. FTAs provide a backdoor, a sort of a B option. We may not agree in the TRQs in the WTO, but certainly, you can get 110 in the bilateral. That's the kind of deal we can do. Uh, then there was a question that was raised at me about rules of origin. Does it matter? Well, it's, we're talking about two different things here. I mean, when I talk about laws, I'm talking about Article 50. I'm talking about the, the, the Catholic kabuki dancing, the rituals of the EU. Whereas when we talk about technical regulation, that's what companies meet at the border. You don't have control of that if you're an exporter. So of course that matters. We are talking about two different sets of rules. I'm talking about a when I said, well, the laws doesn't matter. 
what I'm talking about is the procedure of Article 50 and also Article 24 of the WTO. I'm bound to say that politics will trump that. But basically what you have, if you're an exporter facing a market barrier like rules of origin, you can't bring Theresa May and say, I want to have a voucher, I want to have a waiver for the rules of origin requirement. That's not how it works. Would you, Petrus, would you like to answer the... Yeah. I mean, the, the response is, my response is, don't take this thing seriously, but uh, my response is, I, I cannot pretend that I have, um, I can see how this will play out with 130-something, because there are a number of tariff quotas which affect different WTO members. All I'm saying is this. If the EU adopts the, the schedule SEs, there is zero risk that somebody will request a negotiation with Europe. That's all I'm saying. If the Europe splits, I cannot guarantee that. Because somebody might say, I'm sorry, I lose my right to export. And the market, reasonably, might attach a value to this. They say it's the EU 500 million market. If UK something happens in the UK, something happens. I can sell somewhere else. Like the market attaches value when negotiating. I live all my life in Switzerland. Switzerland negotiates specific duties. They don't want to negotiate the majority at Valorem. The market attaches a value to Valorem duties because they are price sensitive, specific or not. Now, you cannot say, well, because I can explain one that. No, I mean, the market might say, I'm sorry, I lose my right, I want compensation. That's all. Now, what would be the best for the EU? Quite frankly, I think it's very difficult to come up and construct a game with 130 something people on the other side who might be affected because the EU split quotas. That's all. Um, okay, we have time just for a couple more questions. Just to say that Petros has to go very quickly, so if there's one well, for him. It's my fault now? Everybody said want to go to a lot. I mean, just say I you're the only one who's rushing out. Um, so if there's any question for him specifically, uh, maybe we should start with that. Or, um, no, we Thank you. I'm uh, Henrique Moraes with the Mission of Brazil to the EU. It's a question to the panel. And I, I would like to hear your views if this uh, Brexit negotiations at the WTO, it's, I'm expanding a bit the, the scope of the question, whether this, uh, these negotiations that will take place at the WTO have any impact on the role of the organization as a global trade governance institution, whether it will bring it back to the central stage or not, whether the WTO will remain as a simply a notary to take notes of the agreements. Thank you. Thank you. Lars Olcott, formerly with the Commission DG Agriculture, so I know a little bit about agriculture and TRQs. Um, first of all, I totally agree with Hasuk about the trumping of politics to uh, the law. I'm fortunately not a lawyer myself, but that doesn't make any difference. The point is that my experience with 25 years in the Commission is that you get an agreement and you then ask the lawyers to put it into a legal text, and that is the reality. And we do have common interest, obviously, to have a neat divorce. Nobody's really interested in having a uh, torturous divorce. So I think the interest is there, and there should be there. I agree, probably you need an election in the UK for the Conservative Party to get its act together, because up till now it doesn't have any mandate. And it needs a mandate. Um, on the TRQ question, you cannot simply say, well, I have 100, and then I adopt that for the 27. That's a major concession. If you have a split which is 70, 
for the 27 and 30 for the UK, for example. That's a major concession to simply apply that as 100 for 27. So that doesn't work. That has to be quite clear. And on, for example, the, the case with butter, New Zealand, that was major uh, concession from the EU at the time for the UK when they joined because it wasn't really anything of interest to the rest of the EU 11, or EU 9, sorry, sorry, as it was. So it's not so easy as it just sounds. Just one observation on the question about a negotiation with the US and the UK. Now, in the TTIP, what really has been the stumbling block has been the dispute settlement process and agriculture. And agriculture remains a stumbling block. What interest would the US have in an agreement with the UK? It's very protectionist on services and banking. It's very protectionist on anything of insurance. Uh, it's also protectionist when it gets to cars. Uh, so an agreement with the US and the UK would amount to, well, the UK accepting chlorinated chickens, hormone-treated beef, and what interest does the UK have in that? Certainly when we put the band together on the 1st of January 89, they were against having all this. But now in the meantime, 25 years or more have passed, so I don't see the UK public being interested in making such kind of concessions. So what's in it that they couldn't have achieved to a much better degree in the TTIP? I don't see it. Thank you. Um, Andre or Jan, maybe one of you want to take the, <laughs> the WTO question first. Um, what the situation, what it would mean for the WTO in the future? Well, I think basically nothing. Uh, to be honest, uh, the WTO is in a critical stage, like many of the global and even regional multilateral institutions. This touches upon far deeper questions, and I don't think any Brexit kind of issue will certainly, certainly revitalize uh, the WTO. Any other comments on the second well, intervention? Take the question of some of the questions head on. The first question around. Um, the first one was about the EU's role, right, in the trading system after Brexit. Was that right? I thought it was about the WTO. Okay, then I misunderstood. Um, well, since I didn't understand the question, I'll answer the second one instead. <laughs> uh, no, uh, to be frank, I think Brexit is actually a... This will come as a big surprise to my friends in DG Trade. I, I like to make jokes about the abilities and inabilities, but I will say this. Brexit is very much a non-event for EU trade policy, believe it or not. Uh, I, I have a whole reasoning around this, but I, I think it's very easy to overstate the importance of Brexit for the direction of UK, EU trade policy. Uh, on that question around what can the UK achieve, uh, I'm afraid that you're right. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that you're head on. And also I would like to add that you know a post-Brexit UK farming has lost cap. And UK has not a public finance pocket to actually f replace the contributions to full. And nor do I think it is in their interest from their economic orientation. UK farming, especially for example in beef, remember 
foot and mouth disease and BSE, etc. It is not in a position of, to become export oriented. And this is landowners are major power in the Tory party. And now you're going to ask them to open up the floodgates from the United States and Australia. Good luck. And on that positive note, unless there are any burning questions, I think it's time to, to wrap up, unless you guys want to say something. No? Thank you very much. Yeah.